Hey gang, this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Mack Weldon, the premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart design and premium fabrics. Their design, Mack Weldon, is to be the most comfortable underwear or socks or shirts or hoodies or undershirts or sweatpants, you get the idea, and more that you'll ever wear. And our listeners this week, of course, can get 20% off their first order by visiting MacWeldon.com and entering the promo code GOODSEATS. Yes, 20% off your first order at MacWeldon.com. Enter that promo code GOODSEATS. Here's our show. The big O, Oscar Robertson, is recognized as perhaps the greatest sports figure ever to come out of Indianapolis. But 100 years ago, Indianapolis produced another spectacular athlete named Oscar, considered by those who saw or played with or against him, perhaps the greatest all-around baseball player that game has ever seen. Only a few folks had that honor. The rest of us are only now learning about the great Oscar Charleston. Because of his awesome power and barrel-chested physique, many called him the Black Babe Ruth. Because of his hitting, speed, and take-no-prisoners approach running the bases, many called him the Black Ty Cobb, to which his fans could only point out, Excuse me, Babe Ruth or Ty Cobb was the white Oscar Charleston. Good hitter, good hitter, good hitter. Uh, the fans was tickled to death when he came to bat. Charleston was one of the greatest ball players that ever lived. Indianapolis's Bill Owens and Chicago's Bobby Robinson are both in their 90s, but the years have not dimmed their memories of playing with or against Oscar Charleston in the Negro Leagues. Owens is an all-purpose infielder. Robinson is a slick-fielding third baseman, recalling a player who did everything memorably. Greatest fielder you ever seen. Yeah, he could look like, know where the ball was going. He'd go right to that spot and turn around and catch the ball. He could do it all. He could hit, run, feel, and throw. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's get to it. How are you, everybody? My name is Tim Hamlin, and this is, of course, Good Seats Still Available. Yep, it's our curious little podcast, our little journey, our little exploration each and every week, if you can believe it, into what used to be in professional sports. Thank you tremendously for finding us uh, and putting us in your earbuds this week. Uh, We know you've got uh, a a quadrillion uh, amount of choices out there uh, in podcast land and uh, uh, despite all the odds and uh, uh, all the consternation, uh, we continue to put out uh, a show each and every week on uh, on what we like to uh, fascinate uh, uh, and obsess about, uh, which is uh, teams and leagues and, and the various stories uh, no longer with us for whatever reasons. And we're going to continue our our, uh, our journey into the Negro Leagues this week uh, with our guest, Jeremy Beer. And, um, uh, you know, I know a number of you out there, you know, look at sort of old baseball stuff as as not as exciting, say, as uh, uh, the travails of, you know, the Alliance of American football from six months ago or, or maybe the the XFL in, in a couple of months. Uh, uh, knock on wood as, as it gets ready to uh, attempt uh, a life as well. But uh, we continue to be fascinated by stories regardless of how old they are, uh, because if they're a team or a league or 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 plurals of such. Uh, that are no longer with us. Uh, it's all part of the big tableau of pro sports. And uh, this week's uh, conversation uh, is is truly a standout one and one that I learned uh, a tremendous about, uh, amount about, and not only in our conversation, but in this book uh, that Jeremy Beer has written. It's called Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player. And 
you know, for those even baseball scholars, uh, I think it's lost upon them as uh, the talent and the standout nature of this player known as Oscar Charleston, arguably, not even arguably, perhaps the best player in Negro League history. Now, a name, though, that that most people, even historians, baseball historians, don't really know a whole lot about. I think even, you know, even in the realm of of, of Negro League history, right, people know a cool Papa Bell and, and, and certainly, you know, folks like Satchel Paige, right? Those are names that even even the cursory sports fan, you know, just knows from from legend and and all those other things. But you get into it, uh, as you'll hear in our conversation with Jeremy Beer in, in a few moments, uh, those in the know uh, and arguably uh, not uh, as well publicized uh, would would strongly suggest uh, a guy like Oscar Charleston was. Uh, the preeminent player, center fielder, and a slugger extraordinaire, and frankly, uh, in in the realm of this conversation and our little our little sojourn every week into uh, teams and leagues no longer with us, a really good, uh, frankly, excuse and example of just the very compelling and interesting uh, and uh, uh, somewhat zigzag nature of of what it was to be a player and a manager and a team. Uh, in the Negro Leagues, uh, Oscar Charleston, besides being a, a standout player and then ultimately a manager and a scout, and we'll get into some of that stuff uh, in, in our conversation in a few moments, uh, you know, was on a ton of teams, right? Teams like the Indianapolis ABCs, a, a very well-regarded and and longstanding uh, a team in the Negro Leagues, the Harrisburg Giants, for sure. And of course, the Pittsburgh Crawfords, who in the 1930s were you know, uh, among especially that 1935 team regarded as arguably the best team ever in the in the Negro Leagues. Um, you know, we're talking about teams like the Philadelphia Stars and the St. Louis Giants and the Chicago American Giants and 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 the Hilldale Club. These are all and in leagues, not only the Negro National Leagues, two of them, the Negro American League, the East West All Star Game, which was uh, uh, the uh, the showcase for for African American. Uh, ballplayer talent in Chicago for many years, uh, the Eastern Colored League. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, variations and things, and and all of these are for us uh, check boxes of uh, of clubs uh, and leagues uh, no longer with us that uh, are absolutely uh, and endlessly fascinating. And the history and life of this amazing ballplayer by the name of Oscar Charleston. That's our that's our conversation this week. Uh, with Jeremy Beer. And I will tell you, not only is this conversation interesting and fascinating, but the book that Jeremy has written is is well worth uh, the deep dive. And, and frankly, as they proverbially say, makes a great gift. Uh, not only is it well researched, but it's just a it's a it's a very interesting read. And if you're looking, frankly, for a quintessential uh, example of what Negro League baseball was all about, uh, in the uh, in the personification of of one of its best players, uh, you could do uh, worse than to uh, get a copy uh, of this book, Oscar Charleston: The Life and Legend uh, of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player. Uh, it is published by our friends at University of Nebraska Press. I highly recommend it, uh, and I learned a whole bunch. And uh, I think even to the uh, cursory uh, interest of folks uh, just generally interested in baseball or just you know, African-American sports history. Uh, it is a, it's a, it's a fascinating, uh, a book and, and well worth pursuing. And uh, of course we'll have a link to it on our website at good still available.com. Uh, but, uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, 
and, uh, you know, read it first and listen to this episode or vice versa. Uh, but uh, it, it, I cannot uh, strongly recommend it uh, enough for uh, your consideration. And uh, we'll get to that conversation in just a moment uh, as uh, we roll on here. And we, of course, want to say uh, hello and welcome uh, again to uh, one of our great sponsors. And that's, of course, in this week's episode, Dollar Shave Club. And uh, you've heard me talk about them before. They are not just how to help you uh, shave better and, and stay comfortable, uh, but they've got you covered, Dollar Shave Club does, from literally head to toe. They've got everything that you need to shower, shave, style your hair, brush your teeth. Yeah, even wipe your, you know, your back end there. Uh, it's a whole range of stuff to keep you fresh and clean uh, and uh, and well-shaved shall we say. And uh, it also is, uh, it's a great service Dollar Shave Club is to keep you automatically stocked up on all those products that you use without having to worry about going to the store uh, and worrying, frankly, about the quality uh, that you're getting. And of course, uh, as the holidays get closer, uh, if you're looking for that last minute gift for the uh, that guy in your life, uh, perhaps even for yourself, for God's sakes, uh, you could put the quality of Dollar Shave Club's product to the test right now by getting their ultimate shave starter set which basically has everything that you need for an amazing shave things like the executive razor the shave butter uh the prep scrub and of course <laughs> that post shave do uh from dollar shave club it's all in that ultimate shave starter set and the best part is of course you can try it for just five bucks our audience our listeners can get that ultimate starter set for just five bucks at dollarshaveclub.com slash good seats. That's again, dollarshaveclub.com slash good seats. And you will get for five bucks only uh, that uh, ultimate shave starter set. And of course, after that, you know, you get to be able to restock all of the stuff uh, with their regular size products uh, at their regular prices. But of course, you can choose uh, as to how often or how uh, when. You want to get restocked. Uh, if it takes you a long time to restock, well, so be it. If you uh, shave a lot and uh, and like their stuff and want it on a weekly basis or then some, by all means, go ahead. But again, that's dollarshaveclub.com slash good seats for your $5 offer to get that ultimate shave starter set from Dollar Shave Club. Again, one more time, dollarshaveclub.com slash good seats and get your ultimate shave starter set for just five bucks. And we, we appreciate it. Uh, our pals at Dollar Shave Club for uh, for sponsoring this week's episode. And we appreciate you giving them a try and giving us a little love when you do so. And uh, once you're done doing that, once you uh, head on over uh, to your earbuds and uh, and download and listen to, uh, hopefully with uh, some interesting, uh, some knowledge coming your way with our conversation coming right up here with Jeremy Beer as we talk about the life and the legacy of perhaps one of the Negro Leagues' greatest players, Oscar Charleston. Here's our chat coming right at you. Maybe give us our audience a sense of who you are and sort of how you came across the the, the Oscar Charleston story. And, and I got to think it's somewhat wrapped up in the Negro Leagues generally and or baseball uh, interest uh, overall. No. Right. It's more the latter. Uh, Oscar led me to the Negro Leagues um, uh, more generally. I, I'm just a baseball fan, um, not not a journalist. I have a, have a doctorate in psychology, actually, and so I'm sort of, sort of a frustrated academic who's working in consulting now. And 
really uh, just a baseball fan and a Bill James fan and was reading his uh, new Bill James historical abstract 10 years ago or so and going through his top 100 players of all time list. And it's the first time he had included Negro Leagues players in that list. He hadn't in the first edition of the book, but this is the second edition uh, because he thought he had more numbers to go on now, more information. And number one was Babe Ruth, uh, which is totally understandable. Number two was Honus Wagner. Fine. Number three was Willie Mays. Pretty conventional so far. And number four was Oscar Charleston. And it blew my mind that it could possibly be the case that one of the top five players of all time could be somebody I'd never heard of. And I, I thought I was a baseball fan. I thought I knew something about the game's history. So that really just surprised me. And then uh, I found out he's from Indiana as I am. And that really piqued my interest. I, again, I thought uh, my friends and I, you know, would uh, always going back and forth about uh, the greatest, you know, uh, baseball players of all time from Indiana, greatest basketball players, greatest musicians, whatever. It's just like Indiana stuff. And he was not on any of our radar screens. So uh, that uh, really piqued my interest, really kind of ticked me off that there was somebody like that who could escape my historical consciousness. So that is how I got interested in Charleston, which led me to do a deep dive into the Negro Leagues um, and African-American history in the 20th century a little bit uh, as well, and um, led to the book. So that's interesting. So Robert Peterson, right, who wrote, you know, one of the more seminal works, Only the Ball Was White, you know, uh, I quote from from his book, and this is a sort of leads me to my next question. At his peak, Charleston was perhaps the most popular player in the game. When he was with Hilldale in 1928 to 29, he was to Philadelphia what Smokey Joe Williams was to New Yorkers when the latter was with the Lincoln Giants, their hero, wrote Chester L. Washington in the Pittsburgh Courier. Quote, scores of school kids turned out regularly just to see Oscar perform. He was to them what Babe Ruth is to kids of a lighter hue. And it leads me to sort of the the general question, and I think you kind of sort of stumbled across it a little bit in your answer. Random people who have a passing understanding of baseball and a little bit of history, right? Know people like Satchel Paige and, and arguably cool Papa Bell, right? But Oscar Charleston, right, despite being so highly ranked by somebody like a Bill James, right? And so to those in the know, well-regarded and or lauded, frankly, for his talents, and we'll get into a bunch of it. How come his name and his persona is arguably lesser known than some of those other names? Yeah, not arguably. I mean, definitely, definitely lesser known. It's, uh, there, there are a lot of facets to that answer. Um, you know, Paige... Uh, first of all, played in the major leagues and uh, lived on to see himself be inducted into the Hall of Fame and was a quote machine and a total character. And Paige um, had this sort of dynamic, once in a generation personality that is just uh, unforgettable, right? So he's in a category of his own. Bell had the good luck to be talked about by Paige. He's a, he figures in Satchel Page anecdotes. That's primarily, I think, how most how he sort of came into our view. He's also um, uh, blessed with a great uh, nickname, uh, and he lived uh, for quite a while after his career, and also had a uh, family members who who tended his flame. Charleston didn't have any of that luck. Uh, he 
he died young uh, in 1954. He wasn't a self-promoter while he was alive. Um, he uh, did not leave any descendants, no children, and no one. He was separated from his wife, and, and she was a quiet person. There was no one tending his flame. And his city didn't claim him. Indianapolis didn't sort of hold him up as a favorite son. I think Indianapolis had sort of forgotten about him by the time he died. And then you have this period, really uh, from the 50s uh, through the 70s, really until Robert Peterson writes, only the ball was white, um, where no historians or researchers really seem to do much with the Negro Leagues. Um, there wasn't a lot of incentive in the, in the white community or the black community for remembering the Negro Leagues. It was sort of a painful memory. And so you have this period where there's sort of not much done. And by the time uh, we get past that period, Charleston's gone. Most of the men who saw him play in his prime uh, were gone. And there were family members to talk to. And so I think it's all those things. One more thing I would add, um, he's not the only one, right? Uh, among players who played their entire careers in the Negro Leagues, we know kind of generally the random person, like you said, who's interested in sports knows about Josh Gibson to some extent. They might know the name Cool Papa Bell, but they don't know anybody else from the Negro Leagues. You know? They don't know John Donaldson or Bullet Rogan or John Henry Lloyd or Cristobal Torriente. None of these guys. So Charleston, in a way, should stand for us as sort of like a representative of this entire field still open to us to get to know. So how did he stand out on, on, on your radar? I mean, obviously, there's the, the, the Indiana connection, I guess, but how, how did... How, I mean, was it was simply was it James's listing or I mean, you know, there were clearly other Negro League players that that stood out that were in that list, too. Well, it was it was James's list. I mean, he's the first, he's the best of all time and from the Negro Leagues in James's list. So that's something. And being from Indiana is definitely something for me. Um, but the other thing that stood out was he clearly was a really interesting guy. And at first, when I started the project. um, I thought he was something very, very different than he turned out to be. Because if you just Google around and read what you can online, Wikipedia, and just random articles that have been written over the last generation, he comes off as maybe a sort of borderline psychopath, you know, a, a, you know, very, a violent man, kind of a, a berserker. And, and so I thought he was, um, that's what I thought I was going to encounter that interested me. I thought, well, there must be some really good stories here. Um, and it also interested me that it was a lot of contradictory information about him. I mean, clearly, he hadn't been taken seriously as a historical figure. So that kind of is how I got interested in him. And as I say, I learned that he was somebody much different than I expected to meet uh, in a good way. Well, it's also interesting, too, and, and I guess for our little genre of, of exploration on this show, it's also kind of a convenient excuse to – kind of, you know, revel in and, and uh, all of the Negro Leagues generally because, you know, he, here's a guy, and, and maybe this is indicative of the Negro League lifestyle, um, you know, played on, you know, almost a dozen or so teams or variations of such uh, across a number of of leagues, which I think both speak to the relative, um, well, less than, shall we say, standardized uh, consistency, I guess, of the quote-unquote Negro leagues, right? I mean, some of them were a little more league-centric and 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 uh, you know well-defined than others, right? And and uh, maybe you can give a little general background as to sort of why he was 
you know, playing with Indianapolis for so many years and, and went through like, I don't know, it must have been 10 or 11 or 12 different teams over the course of his almost 30 year career. Right. Um, yeah, it, you, you hit on it. Um, probably the fundamental problem uh, in, in the Negro Leagues in terms of their institutional structure was that they were uh, chronically undercapitalized. There just wasn't enough money to make for stability. And so you had owners having to sell players off. Oftentimes you had players just uh, leaving teams because owners couldn't pay them or because they could get paid more over here. And league structures weren't uh, strong enough to um, uh, enforce any sort of discipline with respect to contracts and that sort of thing. Again, because it simply, the money wasn't there to make that possible. Uh, they couldn't afford uh, essentially to enforce that kind of discipline. So what you have is a very fluid player movement. You have fluid um, sort of team um, movement in the sense of them coming and going. Um, and, and that accounts for a lot of Oscar's career. It's not that he was uh, particularly disloyal. Uh, he wasn't Satchel Page, where um, he had no team spirit or no sense of sort of team cohesion. I mean, Satchel really had none of that, right? Uh, it wasn't one of the virtues he brought brought to the um, brought to the table. Page was the was the star attraction. He knew it, and most other people knew yeah. it too, right? Yeah. Right, right. But he also had the sort of soul, the sort of solipsistic soul that he just didn't feel like any loyalty like to a team. Yeah, he knew he was a star attraction. Other guys did too. I mean, Oscar knew he was a star attraction for most of his career, but he generally didn't, you know, leave to go play on a North Dakota auto dealer's team in the middle of the season, like, like Pace did. Uh, he, so they were just different. They were very different personalities. But anyway, that, that accounts for a lot of it. You know, he might, there, early in his career, he got into some contretemps with uh, his managers, um, only a couple of them. C.I. Taylor, his mentor, a, a man he, he ended up loving very much uh, on the Indianapolis ABCs. They sometimes uh, butted heads. But a lot of times it was just um, he was he was uh, a victim of of teams fi financial fortunes, you know. So that explains a lot uh, why he and others moved from team to team. Another thing I'll just say quickly: um, some of the teams he said to play for, like the Detroit Stars, that was only like for that'd be like for a few games in the season when he'd be loaned to play for them against like a team of white major leaguers. Um, or some particularly big game. That's the sort of thing that also happened in the Negro Leagues a lot. And if you don't really delve into the history, you might think that he was like playing equally for this, you know, two or three teams in a season. And, and that often or never was the case. Yeah, well, so that that's interesting. So so maybe you can give our audience a bit of a, a, bit of a sense of, uh, I guess, more of the, the teams he was mostly uh, prolific with versus, say, sort of the the dalliances, say, the stars and certainly Indianapolis, the ABCs, certainly at the beginning of his career, certainly the Harrisburg Giants, I guess, arguably in the middle of his career and, and Pittsburgh and the and the various Crawford's uh, diaspora, I guess, uh, after that. But maybe you can give our audience a sense of sort of, you know, where most of his exploits kind of were rooted during his career playing wise. Yeah, right. I would say those are the three main teams. Uh, that he was associated with the Indianapolis ABCs. He came up with um, and played uh, more or less, uh, I think like six of his first eight seasons with them or something like that. 
Uh, then he goes to Harrisburg in 1924 for two reasons. He's, first, he's married a woman from Harrisburg, and she would like to be near her family. And secondly, he gets the opportunity to manage a team for the first time. He's 27 years old at the prime of his career, and is just a natural leader. He, he's not a natural follower. Uh, and he, the, the times he's most frustrated are when he's not in charge. So he's in charge of that team. He helps shape the roster. Um, so he's with the Harrisburg Giants from 1924 through 1927 when they fold, essentially. He has to move again. And the Crawfords from 1932, really until that team uh, folds after the 1940 season, I believe. So those are the three main teams. And then with uh, the two other stints that would be worth really mentioning would be his couple of years with the Hilldale Club of uh, basically Philadelphia and the Homestead Grades in the other major uh, Negro Leagues team in Pittsburgh. Um, those, those would be the teams with, with whom he would be most closely associated. Well, before we sort of get into sort of his, his hopscotching and, and, and uh, yeah, I would call it guest starring, but but uh, going to other teams and stuff, I, maybe we could talk about sort of the origins of of the career, because it also interesting, too, it overlaps with, I guess, what uh, the early days of the, this Indianapolis ABC's club was about, because uh, like a lot of clubs in the, you know, in the teens and in the very part, early part of the 20s, uh, there were they were mostly independent, right? Or I know certainly ABCs were, right? There were no, if you will, organized leagues uh, per se. Obviously, a bunch that came shortly thereafter. But but he spent a, a good amount of his time in the earliest part of his career playing with the ABCs and or independently. No. Yes, right. The first formal uh, Negro League isn't formed until. 1920. So next year is the 100th anniversary of its formation. Uh, before that, you just have, as you say, independent teams uh, not playing in any leagues. And sort of like college football used to be, you do have sort of mythical championships that are awarded uh, often by themselves from teams you know, to themselves. But uh, the press kind of gets involved before that time, kind of identifying who the best teams are. They're barnstorming across the country playing each other. And it, you know, it sort of becomes clear. So, yeah, that's what he's doing uh, from 1915 when he debuts at the ABCs uh, through 1919. And um, what that means is, as you point out, like in postseason play, he might uh, hook up with a team from St. Louis to play some barnstorming uh, players from the Tigers or something like that or from the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, and he might you know, go to this team or that team very briefly just to get in on some action, you know, basically to make some money. That's, that's what baseball was like, not just before formal leagues are started, but even after the formal leagues are started. Um, if an opportunity knocked, a player often would go take advantage of it. And oftentimes his owner would, would allow him to do that, um, especially if they could kind of split the cut. So that's, that's part of the Negro Leagues story. Yeah, it's almost like uh, uh, you know being sort of a rep for a, a concert sort of tour, right? Uh, you're you're a promoter, really. I mean, you're really you're talking about gigs and 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 stadiums and selling tickets and and you know attracting as many people as you can, and then you know once it's done, get get it ready and go move move on to the next town and and do the same thing all over again. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you might go to uh, like Oscar a couple of years goes to Florida after sort of baseball's over up north and plays in something called the Hotel League in Palm Beach, where there were like two hotels that fielded teams of black players. 
that played against one another. One of the first, that's the first time Buck O'Neill saw Oscar Charleston play actually was in the hotel league of Florida. Uh, later in the twenties, he's going to Cuba almost every year to play winter ball. Uh, he goes to California one year in the winter and plays against white major leaguers out there. So yeah, there was always something going on. It makes for sort of a dizzying history, but at the time, what it felt like was just what's the next opportunity down the road? You know, where can I go make some money plying my craft? Well, give me a sense in these uh, in these pre league years um, w- with Charleston. I, in your research, like how does he start, or, or in your mind, how does when does he start to sort of get some um, some notice? I guess in, in maybe in the in the research and the clippings and the the writings and stuff, because obviously he's he's he emerges as you know one of the early players to you know. Uh, to make his mark in the leagues as they got formed, right? And we'll get to the Rube Foster. But was he was he standing out versus anybody else, or was he just a solid player that was just around and, and just naturally, like everybody else, kind of just gravitated to now a more semi-professional league once it uh, got going? Or was he a standout? Was he becoming an attraction even in his independent days? He, he stood out uh, right away. Uh, he starts in 1915. He's only 18 years old, just out of the army. He's been playing baseball in the Philippines, and he stands out. He he shows a lot of power. And it was a time, you know, this is the dead ball era when power was rare. So he hits like a couple of home runs in the first few games of his career, and it's wow, that really blows people away. And he doesn't hit anymore the rest of the year, but he's still called you know a powerful slugger for the rest of rest of that year. And the other way he stood out was for his defense. He played a really shallow center field and he, and he went back on balls and made catches that people just could not believe. Um, so that was the other way he stood out. And then there's a third way he stood out and that was for getting into fights. <laughs> he got, he got into a, a spectacular fight on the field in an exhibition contest against a white team in 1915 in Indianapolis uh, in which he slugged an umpire, decked a white umpire at second base who was fighting with one of Charleston's teammates at the time. And uh, that caused an on-field uh, riot of considerable scale, like front-page news the next day in, in the Indianapolis Star, and it lands him in jail. Uh, he's bailed out by his owner, and they go to Cuba on a tour, uh, and he, doesn't, he ends up paying a fine, and that's pretty much it. But he, so he makes a mark in some good ways and one bad way <laughs> right away. Um, and so by the time... Yeah, you know, then in 1918, I would say is his first really great year. Hit something like 390 by the best statistics we have today. Uh, in 1919, when he's playing for Rube Foster in Chicago, this is right after World War One. Uh, he hits something like 400, and is just that's when he really becomes a superstar. And it's say 1919, age 22, people are starting to talk about him as the greatest player in the black game. So that's about when that would happen. Wow, I mean that's amazing, uh, especially given the fact that that the um, the play was obviously uh, not even quote unquote organized. I mean it was, you know, it was it was not sort of within sort of league play. But maybe maybe give a little bit of a sense. I mean the fact that he was playing for the ABCs, which was already a notable franchise, perhaps along the lines maybe of of, of folks like uh, the uh, Chicago American Giants, Rube Foster's team, right? It seems like around that sort of turn of the decade. Those were kind of the two teams in this even pre-league kind of play that were kind of standing out already. I mean, 
it, it probably didn't hurt the fact that he was on one of those teams as, as a league was starting to get formed. Yeah, definitely didn't. Um, it, it, there was, were two of the bigger teams uh, going at that time, although the ABCs actually didn't feel the team in 1919, or at least didn't at the beginning of the season because of uh, uh, the war and some complications that arose from that. The East, you find you have a couple of big teams in the East, in New York, um, uh, like the Lincoln Stars, I think at that time would have been uh, a big team or the Lincoln Giants. I may be mixing those up. So the, the names are so similar. Hard, hard, yeah. hard to mix, mix all these teams up, right? I, I, even, <laughs> even the most scholarly of, uh, of students have a tough time keeping up with all of it. I know, I'm trying. Um, I'll say this, when, when the league is formed, when Rube Foster, he gathers together all these prospective owners. He calls into a meeting in Kansas City, the YMCA that's still standing near the uh, Negro Leagues Museum today. And um, he, he hands them all, uh, all these articles of incorporation. I've started a league, <laughs> you know, and he's registered the corporation in all these different states. And they're very suspicious because Rube was an ultra competitive and they're like, what's the angle? And one of the ways he persuaded everybody that he was doing this for the greater good of black baseball was he gave Charleston back to the Indianapolis ABCs. He, he, he like, he, we have to have competitive, you know, some, um, uh, parody, right. And, um, he gave him back. So that's Oscar sort of figures into the league formation in that way. Not only was he probably the biggest superstar when the league started, but, uh, R- Rube's great gesture of giving Oscar back to the ABCs was regarded as proof of his goodwill. Well, but right. I mean, he's, Foster's also the guy behind the the rise of the Chicago American Giants, right? And I'm guessing that. Uh, and now you correct me on this, right? So, when Charleston goes to Harrisburg, known as the Giants, is there a relation there with the Chicago no. American Giants? Okay, this is me only. No, so many Negro League teams were called the Giants. Okay, got and it. It seems like nobody knows exactly why, but it became sort of code for. This is probably a black paint if you just read it in print. Got it. So I was just I'm getting a sense of, OK, I was trying to figure out to, to, to your point earlier, what was Foster's angle? Right. Because clearly the American Giant was his baby. And, you know, arguably it's I, I don't know how charitable he was trying to be by creating a league. I think he was. Okay. I, well, I think he knew the league was going to raise all boats. I mean, he knew he was going to ultimately um, profit you know, and benefit from the formation of a league. But I think he, Rube was able occasionally to transcend narrow self-interest. And I think that was one of the occasions, you know, in which he did that. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a later occasion in which he loans money to the um, Olivia Taylor, who's C.I. Taylor's widow, who has come into possession of the ABCs and, and the finances are in terrible shape. And he loans her money um, to get through the rest of the season Um uh, with the idea that she'll trade him Charleston after the season. Now, he's going to benefit from that arrangement, but at the same time, he knows, I can't just let this team collapse during the year. We've got to have people to play. <laughs> you know, we have to have some stability. So Rube was always looking out for himself, but at the same time, he could take the he could take a big picture view. All right, so how does Charleston get from a relatively, it seems, uh, stable and standout uh, kind of situation in Indianapolis and go, go to Harrisburg, which... Um, was independent in 22 and 23 and, and joins this, I guess, rival league or direct challenger to the uh, Negro National League, the first one, the Eastern Colored League. 
it comes back to what I was just saying. Uh, the ABCs were a financial mess. And um, uh, Olivia Taylor uh, had driven some players off. And there was all sorts of fights and tension. So that's, that's the first thing. Like Indianapolis was no longer a possibility. But the real reason, well, there are two other reasons. One, his wife was from Harrisburg. And she was a, a strong woman, uh, very attractive both physically and in her personality uh, from everything I could tell. And she, uh, I think, played a big part in wanting to get back east near her family, uh, to whom she was close. And third, he could manage at Harrisburg. Uh, he, he couldn't go back to Chicago manage. Rube Foster had that team. Um, so I think all those factors coming together are what led him out to the you know fairly small town of Harrisburg in this upstart league. Well, so let's talk about that because this is—I'm uh, guessing—the first time that he not only is is a player but also a manager or is able to sort of straddle both of those roles for the first time. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and being a manager, uh, at least at that time, and at least for Charleston, meant really putting together the roster. You're the general manager as much as you are a manager. Um, the man who owned the team is a man named Colonel Struthers, uh, who was. Like the second black policeman in Harrisburg weighed something like 300 pounds, but taught ballet dancing to uh, the youth of Harrisburg. He's quite a character. Um, he wasn't necessarily so well connected in the world of major Negro Leagues baseball to put together, um, to be able to put together a really good roster. That was that was Charleston's uh, job, and that was something I think he really wanted to do. So, uh, give me a sense then of 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 the Harrisburg uh, experience, because I think it's this is also important period of time uh, in the Negro Leagues generally, right? Where, uh, like a lot of things in this country, uh, things kind of stumbled along as the Great Depression eff effectively took root, if you will, economically and macro, um, to the point where uh, there was, from all indications, it seems like, uh, you know, the leagues that had sort of gotten sort of their start in, in the earlier part of the 20s kind of were kind of crumbling and and really kind of, you know, kind of went dark after a while after say twenty nine and, and thirty, um, I, but this is during his time in Harrisburg where he's arguably kind of, you know, uh, I want to say at the peak, but he's he's being able to do both things right and and kind of stand out in in both of those categories, both managing and playing. Yeah, absolutely, it is. It's definitely part of his peak. I mean, some of the statistics he puts up in Harrisburg um, are crazy and they were considered crazy at the time and and it went in the sort of more exacting research is done in the last few years by people going back thinking um old box scores uh they're still crazy you know like in 1924 he hits 405 1925 it looks like he hit like 427 i mean insane numbers um but harrisburg you know this is 24 and 25 this is before the great depression you know his four-year run there um the Eastern Color League had probably its problems were not caused by like the incipient Great Depression. That was probably just more the usual endemic uh, undercapitalization issues of the, of the Negro Leagues. It's when he goes to um, uh, Hilldale, uh, and that's in 28 and 29. That's when the Depression starts to catch up uh, with him. Another league folds in which Hilldale is playing, and um, that creates a lot of this uh, – uh, again, player movement like crazy. So he's only with Hilldale for a couple of years. And that's what the depression and the folding of that team and that league pushes him out to Pittsburgh, uh, where he spends uh, the last sort of 
prime phase of his playing career and ends up with a man named Cumberland Posey in his homestead grace. All right. Well, I want to get to Cumberland Posey in a, in a minute and, and Hilldale and Pittsburgh in particular in a second. But but maybe this is a good opportunity to kind of maybe delve in a little bit into some of the numbers that he's putting up both, you know, on all parts, I guess, fielding, certainly in hitting. Um, and, and maybe as you sort of answer or give a, give our audience a sense of just how dominant and standout his stats and his play uh, was slash were. Can you square that, though, also with uh, what, what I would imagine would be, you know, a, a, a trust factor when it came to statistics in these leagues? Because, you know, how believable, how credible, how not? Or how we're that's exactly the question. Dead. Yeah, that's exactly the question to ask. That's the question I ask, right? I mean, I want to know that too. I don't want to just rely on sort of mythical numbers. Um, and fortunately, we don't have to. So let me, let me answer your question in a couple of ways. First question is, how good are Negro League statistics today? Can we trust them? And it's really odd in a, if you think about it, but the stats we have today are much, much better than we've ever had before, <laughs> including at the time. Uh, when teams were very lax about reporting stats, or leagues certainly were lax about collecting them oftentimes. And uh, then, you know, numbers would just get sort of get made up in the press uh, without too much to back them up. So what's happened, and this is just one of the great things that happened in sports uh, in the last generation, certainly the last 10 or 15 years, really this army of volunteer researchers that have gone back. All these newspapers have been digitized. A lot of box scores were reported, and they've compiled, like recompiled statistics from those box scores. And, and a site that I'd recommend if any of your uh, listeners are interested in this, the site called seamheads.com houses all of this. And it's really well done and it only counts games against top competition. So this isn't just games against you know, the little sisters of the poor. This is major Negro Leagues competition. It also includes games that these teams played against major league teams, uh, as well as in, in like the uh, Latin America as well. But so the stats are pretty good. To answer that first question, the quality, we don't have all of them, but uh, the estimate I've gotten from people who are really know this well, it's like we have 75 to 80% of the box scores between top teams. So it's a good representative sample. So the stats are pretty good. Um, sorry if you wanted to jump in there, but um, the second thing is, uh, so, that, so we know that. And we know that Oscar... Right now, and they, they're still putting in new numbers from time to time on box scores found. But right now, in about half the plate appearances that Willie Mays had, to give some context, he had 210 home runs, 355 stolen bases, hit 351, 431 on base, and a 575 slugging percentage. That's really good. <laughs> and um, I've sort of played around, sort of constructing like what would an alternative major league Oscar truly been able to do. And it seems to me, if you're just very conservative and say, well, he would have hit at least 300 home runs. Um, he would have stolen at least 400 bases. He almost did those, uh, you know, again, in half the plate appearances that Mays had. He was very durable. He would have hit at least 300. He hit 351 in the Negro Leagues. Um, and we know he would have been like a positive defender, you know, in the advanced analytics language. He would have been, a, you know, above zero in terms of defensive wins above replacement. Who else in Major League history has done that? Nobody. Nobody has, has hit those four marks. So um, that gives you some sense of how unique his skill set was.
All right, what's this? Mack Weldon. Mack Weldon, of course. Mack Weldon is the premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart design and premium fabrics. And, uh, you know, they, they go out on a limb, Mack Weldon does. They claim that their stuff is better than whatever you're wearing right now. That's uh, that's pretty bold, and them them's fighting words for sure. But you know what? In the case of Mack Weldon, it's absolutely true. I trust me because I've been wearing a whole bunch of Mack Weldon stuff over the last number of months, and I can I can vouch for for just about all of it, frankly. Uh, and they're designed, frankly, the uh, Mack Weldon uh, offerings to be the most comfortable underwear, uh, undershirts, socks, shirts, hoodies, sweatpants, you name it, anything in the in the realm of basics. Mack Weldon has got you covered. And uh, not only does Mack Weldon's underwear and socks and shirts look good, they perform well, too. They're great for working out or, or going to work or going out on dates, you know, just everyday life. And um, I, uh, I highly recommend them. And it, they're easy to purchase. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a great way to sort of get all your basics covered uh, with one in one fell swoop. Uh, with our friends at Mac Weldon. Of course, we got you covered with a, uh, a discount for you. Make sure you use the uh, promo code GOODSEATS when you go to MacWeldon.com and you're going to get 20% off your first order. You bet, 20% off your first order just visiting MacWeldon.com and entering the promo code GOODSEATS. Now, I've, you know, beyond uh, a couple of the shirts and they've got a, a couple of great uh, uh, thermal uh, long sleeve shirts. I love those, especially as the uh, the uh, months are getting colder now. Uh, but I will tell you, the uh, probably the most uh, uh, underrated offerings in their collection of fine garb uh, are socks. They've got a tremendous selection and array of different uh, uh, forms of socks. There are uh, some really great uh, dress and, and casual looking socks. Uh, they're and they're high quality too. I've been wearing them, like I said, for a couple of months now. They stay they stay high in your calf. They uh, they don't lose their shape. Uh, and of course, they're made with, uh, along with a lot of the other clothing that they've got at, at Mac Weldon, uh, from their uh, proprietary antimicrobial technology, which basically means they help eliminate odor. Doesn't mean you can't wash them. You got to wash them, of course, guys. But uh, in terms of uh, uh, their uh, staying power, shall we say, uh, it's uh, it's uh, amazing technology that keeps your clothes as fresh and clean as they can be uh, as they go on in their lifetimes. And again, we've got 20% off all of your purchases from your first order at MacWeldon.com when you enter the promo code GOODSEATS. So check it out. Again, MacWeldon.com, promo code GOODSEATS. And now, back to our conversation. In your research, and as you you know, as you get a better sense of, of of Charleston the player, what was what is your sense of the quality of play, say relative to quote unquote organized baseball at the time? As mm-hmm. good, yeah. Not as good, better. Depends. That's yeah. No, that's a great question. So there there are two two things I'll, I'll say. One, with just respect uh, to Oscar, uh, we do have stats from 158 plate appearances he had against major league pitching and his batting average is a little bit higher. His on base is just a tick lower and his slugging is way higher. So he, he, he killed major league pitching too, but I'm sorry, and there's before, other things. Before you go further on that one, what those yeah. are what exhibitions or situations yeah. where yeah. major league and Negro leagues were playing each other. Like, and what were the dynamics behind those? Cause I, I'm very yeah. ignorant about sort of those, shall we say cross pollination matches games series. Well, this is something I didn't really realize, and I, probably a lot of people don't, but it was extremely common. Uh, after 
the regular season was over for so-called organized ball, like you say, and for the Negro Leagues, for the, uh, for uh, promoters to gin up a team of black all-stars and a team of white all-stars and put them against each other, either in just one city or as a sort of traveling show, right? A barnstorming show. So, and these are great players. This isn't um, marginal major leaguers we're talking about. We're talking about Lefty Grove and Walter Johnson and Jimmy Fox and players like that, Lou Gehrig, uh, who Oscar himself played against. So those, those are the contests we're talking about. Usually in October, uh, bleeding maybe even into November uh, is when those games would have taken place. Interesting. Okay. So, but, but then yeah. exhibition. Back to the quality but, of. No, but leagues. still, <laughs> but, but obviously there's, we're not talking about watered down, quote unquote, white teams, right? These are, these are head to heads. And so, so these stats aside from. For the, the most part. Right. Okay. So, so that, okay. The, clearly some standout then. And he makes yeah mix. for the most part. I'll, I'll, here's the thing you have to so sorry two more things to really illuminate this. So we know that in those contests, black teams won the majority of the time, a little over fifty percent. I don't I remember exactly what it is. That say it's fifty two, fifty three percent. However, on the other side, if you look at how all black teams fared against um, teams at different levels, college teams, military teams, AAA teams, and all down the line, look at their winning percentages. Then you look at the winning percentages of, of white major league teams playing exhibition contests against those same levels, which also happened frequently in this era. The white teams have higher winning percentages at, in every category, not by a lot, but by a little. So what I would say in answer to your question is when you look at all the evidence, the white major league teams had more depth. Uh, the overall, the competition in the white major leagues because of that fact was a little bit better. Just the top, from the top to the bottom of the roster, they were deeper than uh, the, your ordinary, your average Negro Leagues team, which would have, say, the top seven or eight players, I would say, were major league quality. But you'd be filling out the roster with guys who would be probably in the minor leagues uh, in you know, so-called organized baseball. And that just makes sense when you think about it, right? They're just population differences here. Uh, there just aren't as many players for the uh, Negro Leagues teams to select from. So that's the answer. The tops of the rosters were totally um, every bit as good. Uh, and the best teams could definitely have competed in the major leagues and, and, and comported themselves well. But overall, probably just a tick, uh, a tick lower. But again, I know you've got a couple of examples in the book. And of course, they, they elude me right this moment. But uh, clearly, he got some attention uh, despite the segregated nature of baseball at the time from the white teams and white uh, structure. No, about his play. Yeah, it, absolutely. I mean, first of all, it actually wasn't that uncommon for um, white. Uh, let's say that Charleston would often play at Forbes field. Even before he was in Pittsburgh, there'd be a lot of games played at Forbes field. It wasn't that uncommon for a, a Honus Wagner or a Paul Wayner or somebody like that to be in the stands watching. And these guys were interested, you know, they, they wanted to, to see, you know, how, how good these uh, African-American players were. And so that's where some of these observations come from later. And then even more come from guys who played against Oscar. And that um, that's happening very early on in 1915, you know, from the very beginning of his career, really until its end. And um, not just Oscar, but a lot, lots of other Negro Leagues players. So they, they see firsthand 
just how good he is and how good his peers are. And they're not, they're surprisingly not very shy, at least some of them, about reporting it, you know, about saying, these guys are every bit as good as, you know, uh, you know, what we have. Um, you know, and some of them say, uh, one man in particular, I think it was uh, Hollis Thurston, who, who um, hails down uh, a former Negro Leagues player at one point, asked him if he played with Charleston. He says, yeah, he, he was my manager, actually. And, and Thurston, who had been a pitcher in the major, said, I, I tell you, uh, I barnstormed against him, and he was better than any other player I've ever played against. I'm counting Ruth, Cobb, Hornsby, and all of them. So, um, and he's not the only one to say that kind of thing. So, yeah, there was um, a lot of uh, testimonials from white players based on what they saw. Well, and, and ownership, too. And, and maybe we can kind of, you know, uh, sort of speed up on one of the tracks here because it'll become obvious in the 40s, right? And I want to come back to Hilldale and Pittsburgh in a second. But um, I, it didn't escape notice. And I guess what I'm, I'm really constantly curious about is during this era, let's say the 20s and 30s in particular, uh, before uh, uh, integration and before, you know, uh, uh, realities uh, finally, you know, broke through and, and, and you know, kind of corrected some of the, uh, in hindsight, it's just, just craziness of, of segregation. How, how you know, w- what was the, you know, the the party line, I guess, versus the the realities, right? Because it, it's clear that you're, you're sort of hinting at, you, even the book, right, that some of these, you know, players in the "quote unquote" organized uh, major leagues are are recognizing just how darn good these players are, right. and and not only what if, but how how can we sort of you know rectify and or harmonize this kind of stuff? Because right. the players are players, and baseball is you know is is a sport beyond arguably color. That's a great question. I mean, and you, you when you phrase it that way, I realize. Um, probably more pointedly than I had when I wrote the book, just how much tension those testimonials probably created for the party line, uh, which was um, in the 20s, at least in, in, in the 30s, that uh, they, uh, black players aren't as good. You know, they're just not as prepared. Um, you know, maybe they don't have the uh, uh, you know, discipline to play at this level or whatever. I mean, that, that would be sort of the official racist party line. Then you have sort of backing that up some sort of uh, consequentialist arguments, right? Like, well, the fans would never accept, you know, whites and blacks playing together on the same team. So that's why we have to uphold this. Or, um, well, they might, but the Southern white players certainly wouldn't. And, you know, and that's just an insuperable obstacle. So we'll just have to wait till things change in the South. So those would be sort of the more party line answers. Well, I guess I guess the financial instability of of a lot of the leagues and, and the play and stuff too probably didn't help the cause either because it, despite any great playing and all that kind of stuff and all these exhibitions, it still it just seemed like there was a litany of leagues and teams sort of coming and going and and you know coming back and and you know, not a lot of stability. Right, right. So for the the very conditions um, <clears throat> that are responsible for segregation and organized baseball are also responsible for that sort of instability in the black game. Right. That I too. Mean, right. That's what, yeah. So, but it provides, you're right, a convenient excuse. Well, I mean, look, they can't even get their, you know, their leagues really together. I mean, um, is this something we really need to take seriously? Y- yeah. You might hear some uh, arguments along those lines, which, uh, very ironic. 
given the circumstances. Well, give me, all right, so let's get back to Charleston specifically. So give me a sense now, what what is this Hilldale thing all about? Because that's that's even a smaller market than Harrisburg, I I guess, I think, certainly by today's standards. No, it's actually, it's Philadelphia. Hilldale is Philadelphia. It's it's Darby, Pennsylvania, which today is an inner ring suburb of Philadelphia. So that, why they weren't called Philadelphia, I I have no idea. Uh, They never even got really a a real nickname. Sometimes they were called the Daisies, but oftentimes they were just called the Hillsdale Club. But they were essentially Philadelphia's black team until the Philadelphia Stars come along in the 1940s. Interesting. Okay, so so let's talk about that phase of his career, because not only there, but then also Pittsburgh, seems like this is really where a lot of things started to kind of, you know, uh, really stand out for Charleston across a lot of different sort of people's radars. Yeah, his signing in both places was celebrated as a major coup. Uh, Hilldale, that 1928 club, when he was there along with um, uh, Martin DeHigo, who is this multi-talented kind of Shohei Otani uh, slash Babe Ruth of his time. He was a pitcher and hitter and was great at both. We were the leaders of that team and had great, great expectations, super high expectations. And Charleston was the manager. They got off to a slow start and very impatient owner, a man named Ed Bolden, uh, fired Charleston as a manager like a month into the season. And things sort of went south for the team. Uh, Charleston still put up a good season, but his days were numbered with them. Uh, he still gets through the 1929 season with them, but in 1930, um, when he has a chance, he, he bolts to uh, the Homestead Grays in Pittsburgh. Maybe this is a good example, though, perhaps, and another put a push pin on that. What of his personality, right? There are plenty of examples in the book of, of give our audience a sense of, of sort of what drove him beyond his, his play, because it seems like he had some interesting moments in time, and he wasn't, as you said earlier, uh, not shy about standing up for himself or others or or mixing it up, so to speak. Was it just a competitive streak? Was it a a personal sort of thing in his background? Uh, what what drove him, so to speak, in terms of personal? He, he was, yeah, no, he was. It's a great question. So he was um, given. He had flares of temper, which he inherited, I think, pretty honestly from at least his mother, who once greeted a deputy in our door, on her doorstep with an axe. Um, so she must have been given a flares of temper as well. Uh, but he was not an angry man. So he was intensely competitive on the field, but he was also really charming and charismatic and well-liked and popular and cheerful. So you have to keep both of these sort of poles together in your mind to understand who Charleston was. So to give you a great example, in 19, I think it was 1929, he's playing for Hilldale and it gets the Homestead Grays and the owner slash manager, Cum Posey, comes out on the field to argue a call and they get into a fight. Charleston gets into a fight with any Charleston slugs him in the jaw. Right. Well, by the end of that season, Posey has invited Charleston to come barnstorming with him and signs him for his team the next year. So he was the kind of guy who could hit you and you still liked. That's that's the best way I can put it with Charleston. You know, he was uh, you wanted him on your side. And there was something just darn likable about the guy, even as he was just fanatically competitive on the baseball diamond. Well, it also. Um, Yeah, it also seems in in the 30s as he went to Pittsburgh and, and the Crawfords in particular, he also started to exhibit a flair not only for his play and his managerial talents, but also scouting. You can get a, give us a sense of just how successful and standout the Crawfords were in the early 30s because he was helpful in putting together arguably one of the best teams of either 
or a set of baseball leagues uh, in the early 30s. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the guy who starts the uh, Pittsburgh Crawfords, uh, at least puts them into the big time, is a Pittsburgh gangster named Gus Greenlee. And he, he wants a big time team. And he uh, lures Charleston away from the Grays <clears throat> to come be the manager of the Crawfords. But again, it's Charleston's job to put together the roster. Now, they already had Satchel Page, but Charleston helps convince Josh Gibson to come over from the Grays. And Cool Papa Bell comes on board. And Judy Johnson and Judd Wilson joined the team mid-year. Those are both future Hall of Famers. This team was bristling <laughs> with talent yeah, and continued mackerel. to be I mean, so. Even, even to, the, to, the, to the, the casual Negro League uh, uh, observer, that's, that's, a, that's a stellar lineup. Yeah, and it was, it was Charleston's job to um, you know, whip them into a team and manage them and get Paige to show up for games on time and uh, you know, mentor Gibson and, and all the rest. So, yeah, that gives you a sense of his leadership. A lot of the players on that team in, in oral interviews conducted later reflect back and say um, how tight they were as a team, how connected they were, and that Charleston had a big role in that. You know, he was a very he was militaristic in the way he ran a team. There was, he was as old school as they got. You know, if you were if you were on time, you were ten minutes too late. You know, but he also stood up for them and uh, really um, helped bond them. Oftentimes, in intense situations that would arise on the road, um, if they were barnstorming through the South, for instance, you know, it wasn't unusual for there to be some sort of um, some tense moments with fans or something like that, or with cops, for that matter. Um, so. He had a big part in making that Crawford's team what it was. And it, what it was is one of the most celebrated Negro Leagues teams of all time. Can you also describe uh, for our audience, and I don't think we've kind of talked about this, is uh, uh, he obviously uh, played in this thing called the East-West All-Star Game, which was quite, kind of a big deal in Chicago's Comiskey Park for years. And he had a couple of great years uh, around this time uh, in that game, too. So maybe you can give a little sense of, of how – what that was and 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 why he was just a, a regular write-in for for those games in the mid-30s. Yeah, he um the East-West game was Gus Greenlee's idea. He was aping uh, the first uh, Major League All-Star game that had just gotten played and he saw an opportunity uh, to promote the game and make some money and it became one of the most celebrated sort of social occasions on the calendar actually in the African American community, especially in Chicago, but people came from all over to go to the game and um, really a showcase for the leagues. And later on, a lot of uh, white scouts show up at that game looking for talent. But uh, Oscar was the leading vote getter uh, in the first game. Uh, 1934, I believe, uh, is what we're talking about now. So it, it speaks to his popularity that he was still, even at that time, uh, very late in his career, the most popular player in the game. And later he's often selected to be manager uh, the manager of various teams uh, in that game. Um, and it's uh, uh, really probably no player probably received more cumulative votes, you know, at least in the first few years uh, than Oscar did. And um, it was, it was a showcase for him for sure. So th that, that didn't hurt, I guess, his popularity, not only in the Negro leagues, but I guess also more broadly uh, around baseball generally, but it also, it just seems to me now, I know this is probably just too obvious, but it seems to me that as his career was starting to, you know, elongate and wane, obviously you get older and your, your your skills sort of can decline over time. But also the Crawfords themselves seem to 
um, uh, kind of wobble uh, as the 30s sort of wore on. I mean, was it almost uh, just a kismet to, or uh, a kismet, I don't know if it's the right word, uh, a parallel that both he and the team were kind of sort of segueing, I guess, into uh, uh, a way and, and, and sort of him winding down his playing career to go more fully managerial by the end of the decade. Well, um, yes and no. I mean, certainly Oscar's declining skills didn't help. Uh, and, you know, by 19, 1935, he really struggled with the first bad year since he was a rookie, had a good year in 1936, but that was pretty much it for him. But what really killed the Crawfords were uh, Gus Greenlee's uh, illegal street lottery empire crumbled. And so he had no money anymore. And um, he, had to, he had to basically sell off Josh Gibson in a terrible trade. And then the other thing that killed them was uh, Satchel Paige uh, and a bunch of players jumping the team in 1937 to go play in the Dominican Republic uh, for um, Rafael Trujillo, the dictator in the Dominican Republic who lured them all with a pile of cash. Yes. We want to get into that story at some point, a notorious team, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. So it really, those things are what killed the Crawfords just as much as Oscar's own deteriorating skills. Well, it's interesting too, because I I think a lot of people based on what I've read and and maybe your research either corroborates it or, or augments it, or maybe even, uh, denigrate it a little bit. But I mean, a lot of people look at the Crawford's team in say '35 as being one of the best of best ever in Negro League in the Negro League's history. Um, yet, re- relatively soon thereafter, it kind of you know falls apart. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Really, you could pick uh, the 1932 team actually sort of underachieved, but the yeah 1933 and 1935 teams both uh, won championships of a sort. 1935 team won a very clear championship. Um, and, uh, they were good again in 1936, very good again in 1936, but yet it all crumbles after that, never to come back. Um, they end up going to Toledo and Jesse Owens enters the story around that time as well. Well, okay. So why don't we round third base then in that let, let's uh, maybe make that illusion there. And I really want to get into or his, uh, uh, Charleston's, uh, managerial and scouting full-time job. And in particular, uh, his relationship uh, with a one branch Ricky, because uh, it's clear that he's made some kind of impression, Charleston has, with uh, perhaps one of the more influential, uh, you know, owners uh, in Major League Baseball at the time. Um, but maybe you can kind of walk us through how that sort of all comes about. I, I wish I knew how Ricky and Charleston first met. Um, what I have is a little bit speculative. Uh, he, Ricky was managing the St. Louis Cardinals when uh, Charleston was playing in a postseason uh, exhibition contest against them in the early 1920s. It's certainly possible that they met then. Um, and Ricky has some things in his, in his archives in the, in the Library of Congress, like programs from uh, Oscar Charleston managed teams even later after he was connected with him. So anyway, they had some sort of connection and we don't know exactly how it came about, but we do know that in 1945, uh, Ricky is in the midst of trying to find the first African-American players to sign with the Dodgers. And it's it's his plan to get a jump on the rest of the league and be ready to win when the war ends. Right. But he has a problem. Uh, He's uh, his scouts or him personally uh, really can't go to a Negro Leagues contest without drawing attention to themselves and making it kind of clear what they might be doing because there's a lot of ag- agitation for integration at this point. So 
his answer, his solution to that problem is to is to hire Charleston to scout for him. And the cover for that is Charleston becomes the manager of a team called the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers, which plays in Ebbets Field uh, in a new league called the United States League that Ricky gets involved with, uh, probably just for this reason, to, to be able to scout black players more easily. So um, we know from the testimony of uh, Ricky's lead scout, uh, Clyde Sukforth, that Charleston did a lot of scouting for the Dodgers in 1945. He backgrounded Roy Campanella uh, for them. I convinced them that Campanella wasn't too old uh, to sign. It was his real age. What he said was his real age. was his real age. And he probably also scouted a number of the other early uh, black players signed by the Dodgers. Uh, we have that, again, directly from Soup 4. So, yeah, that was Charleston's uh, scouting for organized baseball role. Probably the first... Uh, African-American to be paid to scout for a major league team. Uh, I don't, he's never gotten credit for that, but I think, I think that is the case. So, so what if this United States league, it, it, it feels like almost a, a, an artificial slash pretense for, I, I guess what was effectively understood as going to be eventually an integrated approach to baseball, you know, once the war was over, et cetera. It was weird. It was, it was Gus Greenlee's idea. It wasn't Ricky's idea. Uh, Greenlee wanted to get back into big time uh, Negro Leagues baseball. I guess his finances had had recovered, and he starts the United States League with a few other guys. And um, uh, he it's just meant to rival the two other major Negro Leagues. And and Charleston comes on board to manage the team in Philadelphia. And that's sort of where things stand when Ricky gets wind of the league, probably from a Pittsburgh Courier uh, journalist named Wendell Smith, and. Ricky just sees an opportunity. He's like, oh, you're looking to put a team in New York? How about Ebbets Field? First of all, he can make some money doing that. But secondly, he, I think he just saw the opportunity. He was opportunistic on Ricky's part. And then he grandstands about it. He holds a press conference and says how the other leagues are big-time rackets. This is going to be different. And, you know, and maybe someday, kind of the thought was, maybe someday this league will go into organized baseball as a league, like as a minor league that's a feeder just like any other minor league is uh, to Major League Baseball. So that seems to have been sort of the thought behind the very short-lived United States League. Yeah, and in this book, there's a couple of great pictures that you've, you've got in the inset of, uh, of uh, Charleston uh, in his Dodgers, quote-unquote, uniform, as well as at the table uh, with uh, Branch Rickey and, and, and some, other, uh, some other gentlemen in the process. And it almost feels like it's, you know, maybe he, he's arguably maybe trying – trying out for being a manager once integration sort of happens, having, having a, a role, uh, you know, albeit not as a player in, in an integrated sort of major league system. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I wonder if he had lived uh, beyond 1954. Um, I, I wonder if he would have at least become a coach, you know, and maybe for Ricky, maybe with the pirates at that point, you know, back in Pittsburgh, that's a, entirely plausible that that would have happened. You know, he did manage an integrated baseball team uh, in 1942, 43, I think even into 1944, but it was a semi-pro team playing in the Philadelphia Industrial League. But he was very proud of that. He clipped a bunch of photos of that for his personal scrapbook. Um, there were newspaper articles about it in the black press. And again, I wonder, like, was there, did any other African-American manage even a semi-pro team that was integrated before 1942. I mean, it's not till the 1960s till it happens in organized baseball. So he may have been a pioneer there as well, but it, it tells you kind of how he was regarded that he could do that at the time. 
Okay, so let me ask you a, little, a couple of last questions. Um, I, so let's talk about sort of his his waning years because it almost feels to me like he was uh, almost sort of an elder statesman at that point, uh, having at least some uh, credibility with the quote unquote white establishment uh, on managerial terms and scouting terms. Uh, clearly, it didn't sort of net out into into something more substantial uh, in the majors after after integration happened, but. Um, maybe a sense of sort of his later years was he, was he maybe up or or in the midst of being considered for some some other roles or were his health issues or or whatever what were there other distractions that maybe prevented it or was it just kind of it just didn't happen for him for whatever reason? Yeah, well, we we don't know, and I don't. I'm trying to think of whether there'd even been a black coach by the time he died in 1954. I'm not I'm not sure there had. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. Like Buck O'Neill goes to the Cubs maybe around that time. But um, so it, well, yeah, you're really right. So he's right the manager. Correcting us right now, but I'm sorry about that. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> Our audience, okay. I'm sure they're saying they're correcting us as we as we speak here. <laughs> Great. Um, no, he, he he's managing the Philadelphia Stars after Jackie um, integrates baseball in 1947, a year in which Oscar's sort of out of the game. He's, he's doing some umpiring. Um, he gets back in the game in 1948, and from 1948 through 1952, he manages the Stars and says publicly and oftentimes, like, you know, his goal is just to send up as many of these players as he can to the majors. Like, every everyone that goes up makes up a little bit for him, you know, and, and you know, the others of his generation who didn't get the chance. So he does play that sort of mentoring, coaching role. He's really calmed down by now because remembered in really beloved terms by players who, um, who played under him during that time. Um, and then in 1954, his last year in the game, he manages a team called the Indianapolis clowns, uh, which is essentially just a barnstorming team. Henry Aaron has played for the clowns the year before. Uh, unfortunately, they don't have anybody that good on the 1954 team, but he does win one last championship. The clowns win the Negro American league championship. at the last league standing. And, uh, so Charleston kind of gets to go out a winner, and soon after the season ends, he um, falls down a flight of stairs in his home, is diagnosed with cancer, he's paralyzed from the waist down, and, and dies very soon thereafter. Well, at least he had sort of that 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 luxury at the end there. Um, you wonder what would have happened. I mean, he died relatively young, right? He was in his late 50s. Yeah. 57, yeah, definitely. I mean, he had he could have had 20, 30 more years in him. You know, nature had taken a different course. All right. Well, so so what have what have you taken out of? You mentioned at the at the outset that that you you kind of had a sense of what Oscar Charleston Charleston was like and what was going to be, and you you sort of got a sense of, of something quite different by the time this project was all sort of said and done. What you know? Here's the sort of the softball, right? What is this sort of legacy? Because it took until 1976 for whatever reasons. To kind of you know for the, for the veterans committee to 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 bring him into the hall of fame, right? So, what happens in those decades in between, and and what is the legacy now that you know we're arguably baseball and sports and and just culture is much more, shall we say, woke about you know everything? Right. Yeah. Uh, well, he does. I mean, the truth, of course, he sort of just falls back into obscurity after 1976. Uh, James. Uh, that ranking leads to a blip of of interest, but um, not much. You know, he sort of has stayed obscure 
Uh, and for the, all the sorts of reasons I've mentioned, um, hopefully that will start to end now, not just for him, but for others, especially for his generation and before in the Negro Leagues. Now, his legacy um, in particular is uh, it's clearly one of the greatest American athletes of all time. There's really no way to look at the evidence and not come to that conclusion. And I, I do think if it were better known, um, there might be even more agreement uh, with the claim I make that um, he may have the greatest all-around complete resume of any figure in baseball history when you ta- take into account not the fa- only the fact that he was maybe a top five, top ten player of all time, but he is also a, a great manager, voted the greatest manager in Negro Leagues history by a poll of ex-players, and was a pioneering scout, uh, you know, who, who broke the scouting color line. Um, Man, that's a lot to put together and into one, you know, Babe Ruth has Babe Ruth on the field, but he doesn't really have anything after that, right? Uh, just in terms of his baseball resume. Um, so it's a very unique combination of achievements. Uh, and not only that, he was admirable. He was an admirable man. That's that's the thing that surprised me. I mean, I wasn't sure I would find that, but he's a leader. Um, he was. He really showed the toughness that it takes to make it under difficult conditions. And I think that's just a great... Um, it's a great lesson, you know, it's a great life to, to, to read about and get to know because of the toughness he displayed and the sort of steadfastness he displayed under all sorts of, you know, different conditions. Amazing topic, amazing story, amazing history, amazing player slash manager slash scout oscar charleston arguably the most underrated or or uh, less than publicized uh, standout in negro baseball league or arguably even baseball history um and I, i'm fascinated i learned an amazing amount about this and, and this book uh will really set you straight and um i, I of course recommend it highly for the holidays and, and thereafter uh, it's called Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player by our guest, of course, Jeremy Beer. Uh, it is available wherever good books are found. It is published by our friends at the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, buy it at, at your independent bookstore or if you'd like a convenient link uh, to it, just search up the episode number 143. Holy mackerel. Uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And you'll be whisked away to Amazon to uh, purchase that book uh giving us a couple of uh of nickels of love as you do so uh and i think into the new year we're going to also try to get an affiliate link with uh the independent bookstore uh, world as well uh to give you a, an alternate choice uh clearly independent bookstores are a very valuable thing in our in our uh in our nation and uh are frankly a dying breed so if we, whatever we can do to sort of help support them as well but uh we will do that uh, look for that in our linkage, shall we say, next year as we get into uh, 2020. But uh, our thanks to Jeremy uh, for this uh, fascinating conversation. And uh, uh, also, if you'd like to uh, kind of celebrate a little bit of, uh, of some of the Negro League uh, stories and goodness as uh, we get closer to 2020 and the uh, 100th uh, anniversary that you'll be hearing more about of the Negro Leagues, so you go to where our friends at uh, OldSchoolShirts.com and use the promo code GOODSEATS, get 10% off all of your purchases, including a whole host of very cool uh, shirts uh, devoted to some of the teams that we uh, mentioned this week, uh, including uh, the Detroit Stars and the Chicago American Giants, 
Uh, let's see. There are a couple of others uh, in there. Uh, the Homestead Grays are represented uh, with a cool looking shirt. Uh, and there are a few others in there. But again, old school shirts. I see the uh, Pittsburgh Crawfords in there, of course. Uh, and again, the Indianapolis Clowns, a really cool uh, logo shirt there uh, as well. Again, all of those shirts and more. Uh, can be found at OldSchoolShirts.com, our, our great sponsors for a long time, our pals uh, uh, P.F. Wilson and friends in Cincinnati. And again, use that promo code GOODSEATS to get 10% off all of your purchases. And uh, obviously, do it now for the holidays uh, and uh, get yourself a few things while you're at it as well. Um, let's see. We want to thank uh, all of our uh, uh, great sponsors. And we, of course, want to uh, encourage you to uh, hang around on our website at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Uh, check out our social media feeds. You'll find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, you will find us on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find us on Facebook. Just uh, find, uh, just search us up there, and you'll find a page devoted us to us there. Uh, you can send us email at hello at Good Seats Still Available dot com. Uh, and of course, when you're on the website, you can also uh, find the link for our weekly newsletter. If you want to be in the know. Uh, just send us a little fill out the form there and we'll uh, get you on the mailing list. That's uh, easily done. And we appreciate your uh, you're doing that, too. And of course, we appreciate our friends uh, at Podfly Productions who help put all of our production stuff together each and every week. And of course, the inimitable Dr. Jerry Payne, the good doctor, we call him. Uh, and we thank him, of course, and them uh, for all their efforts each and every week. You want to find out more about Podfly, getting into the podcast game yourself, by all means, check them out at podfly.net tell them that your pal tim sent you uh and you'll be glad you did as they say all right we are done for this week we look forward to a very special uh, year-end holiday episode next week so until then uh we uh, send you on your way and we appreciate you uh giving us a listen and uh, we wish you the best for the holiday season uh and uh, we look forward to seeing you next week take care and uh, we thank you for listening as always bye bye everybody 